In Genesis chapter 2, having just created man, he gives man a job. God gives man a job, and with the giving of man a job, he gives man purpose. He gives him reason. He gives him uh, aim for his life. See, when man gets a job, it is proof and evidence that we were created for more than just existing. When we are given the dominion over the earth, when we are given the responsibility of, of naming all of the creatures, when we are, are given the task of, of ruling and of, of working the ground, it shows that we're for more than just breathing air. We're for more than just eating food. We're for more than just for putting one foot in front of another. We were built with purpose. We were built to be a part of something grander, to be a, a part of something bigger. But in Genesis chapter 3, something happens. Sin comes into the world and infects the world, and our work turns into toil. You remember how he explains this to Adam. He explains to Adam that now by the sweat of your brow you will labor and you will have a garden and you will eat. Before it was work and now it is toil. All of us know toil this morning, don't we, brothers and sisters? We know what it is to toil. We know what it is to struggle. We know what it is to be exhausted. We know what it is to be weary. We know what toil is. This morning we are going to examine the same question that the author of Ecclesiastes, most likely Solomon, examined himself. What is the purpose of all of this toil? How is it that we are to wrap our minds around the seeming vanity of life? If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 3. This week is the first week of a four-week series of Advent. So the word Advent is the Christian way of saying come. It just The word literally means come. And so Advent is a season in which we celebrate that the Savior has come and that he is coming again. And so what we're going to do over the next four weeks is we're going to build each week up into this grand crescendo that we'll end on on December 20th as we prepare to celebrate the birth of our Savior. So would you stand with me as we read God's word together? Beginning in verse 9, Ecclesiastes chapter 3 says, What gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is already has been. That which is to be already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away. Verse 16, moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them, that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happened to the children of man and what happens to the beast is the same. As one dies... So dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beast, for all is vanity. 
all go to one place. All are from the dust, and to dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. So I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? May God bless the reading and the preaching of his word this morning. So as we open up our passage this morning, the preacher in Ecclesiastes asks us a very pointed question. A question which he will ponder and philosophize himself. He asks us, what gain has the worker from his toil? He says that I've seen the business that God has given to us. I've, I've seen, in other words, the busy work that all of us have. I've seen that life is filled with toil and filled with struggle and filled with, with kind of just existing. And it's, it just seems like vanity to me. It seems meaningless to me. It seems fleeting. Here one second, gone the next, with little or no impact. And so he says, so with all of this toil that God has given us, what does man have to gain? All of us know toil. We've got problems, don't we, brothers and sisters? We've got money problems. We've got job problems. We've got family problems. We've got kid problems. For many of you, you feel the weight on, the, on your chest. It just feels like it's just always there. And you can't even remember the last time that you took a, a full deep breath or was able to get a restful night's sleep. Feels like you have to be in three places at one time, and you just don't know how you're going to do it. And you just toil and languish and struggle, weary and worn and exasperated. And the hard thing about what Solomon writes here is he says that this is God-given toil, doesn't he? Notice what he says in verse two, uh, verse ten. He says, I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. That God has given us in some sense this toil, that, that this is a toil. And, and the tension there is, is that we know that God has built us for something bigger. We know that God is, has built us for something grander. We know that God is, has built us and willed it so that we can connect into this grander purpose, this, this meta-narrative that's happening over the, the sweep of, of eternity. And yet, we feel like we're just existing. We feel like we're just breathing. We feel like we're just doing busy work. That we're just digging holes and filling them back again. Moving a pile of rocks from one side to the other and then all the way back again. It feels pointless. It feels exhausting. It's maddening for many of us. But then he says something strange. He comes to the conclusion in verse 11... That he has made everything beautiful in its time. So, so on one hand, he says, all of this is toil. That God has given us busy work. Busy work that seems completely irrelevant. Busy work that seems completely pointless. It seems like we're just languishing. But then on the other hand, God has made all of this beautiful. God has made everything beautiful in its time. Or as the net translation says, God has made everything to fit beautifully. I think what he's saying is this. Is that most often we are only able to appreciate the beauty of God's design by looking back. Most often we are only able to appreciate the beauty of God's design by looking back. Remember the emphasis here is on time. Everything is made beautiful when? Not immediately. 
not in the here and now, not in the midst of toil, not in the minutia of life, not in the, the mundane of life, not in the ordinary of life, not in the, the living of life. No, it's, it's in its time. In its time. It's in retrospect. It's after things have went a while. That is that all of these mundane aspects of life, all of this toil of life are the threads that God is using to weave together the, the elaborate tapestry of your life that eventually will come to a grand end. And that you will look back and you will look in retrospect and you will reflect and you will see maybe not in this life, Maybe not while you've got breath on earth, but one day, whether it's in heaven and glory or it's here years from now, you will look back and you will reflect back and you will say, God, that was spectacular, beautiful, stunning, that everything in its time will be beautiful. But the truth of the matter is, For those of us in the midst of toil, for those of us in the midst of struggle, for those of us in the midst of this life and in the midst of all of this mundane, it often feels hideous to us, doesn't it? God's plan doesn't look beautiful, it looks hideous. God's timing doesn't look beautiful, it looks hideous. God's providence is is nonsensical to us, it's illogical, it's irrational to us. Think about the way he introduces Ecclesiastes chapter 3. This is the famous, I read this at funerals all the time because it's beautifully written, it's powerful. But he he talks about how there's a time for everything, right? That these are things, and we all know that these are true, and that these are are, are ways that God's providence in in the seasons of life, and even because of the effects of brokenness, are just kind of unfolding in our earth. And some of them are high and some of them are low. Some of them are good and some of them are bad. Some of them we look forward to and some of them we dread. The truth is, is the seasons of life are filled with hideous moments. He says there's a time to born, but there's a time to die, right? Dying is hideous. We hate dying. There's a time to heal, but there's a time to kill. There's a time to weep and a time to laugh. There's a time to mourn. There's a time to grieve. That our lives are filled with difficult toil, difficult moments, hideous moments that in our moment, in our lives, in that second, in that time, we are incapable of making sense of them. Over the last two years, we've walked through some valleys together, haven't we? Over the last two, two and a half years, I've, I've mourned with a great number of you. We've mourned as some of you have lost and buried parents. Some of them, you watched them, de- them, uh, them decline over a long season. And some of them, they were gone in an instant. I've mourned with some of you as you've lost spouses. In the early seasons of your life, times when you weren't supposed to leave, lead them. We've mourned as there's been infertility and you want a baby more than anything in the world. And, and you just pray and pray and pray. And it's just like the prayer is not being answered. And we've grieved and we've mourned and we've prayed and we've sought. Some of you began 2015 making more money than you're going to end 2015. Some of you began 2015 with a job and you're going to end 2015 laid off. And it's easy for us to get wrapped in that toil, to get wrapped in that struggle, to get wrapped in that heartache and that heartbreak and to say, what gain is this? What good is this? What gain is toil in this life? What gain is this for the worker? What is this God? 
If this is given to me by you, if this is according to your providence, I don't get it. This is hideous to me. This is supposed to be your beautiful will. This is supposed to be spectacular for me. I don't see it. I don't get it. I don't want it. See, the hideous moments of life, the toil of life, creating us a longing for God to make it beautiful. The hideous moments of life, the moments that that we dread, the moments that perhaps we wouldn't wish on our worst enemy, all of them point to the brokenness of our earth, to the fallenness of our world, to the brokenness that's in us. And it causes us to long and long and to yearn and beg and plead, God, would you make this beautiful? God, would you make this right? God, would you make this fit perfectly? Would you make this fit beautifully? Would you show me what you're doing? Would you show me what you're up to? See, as we struggle through this life, as we put one foot in front of another, as we deal with toil, as we deal with struggle, as we deal with death and mourning and grieving, our souls are left hungry. Our souls are left groaning. Our souls are left aching. This is why Christ comes. This is why Christ comes. This is what's pointing us to the advent of Christ. This is what's pointing us to why Christ came in the beginning and will someday come again. It's pointing to us and causing us to hunger and to desire and to want and to yearn and to know and to say, God, I know some way, somehow, this is going to fit in the big plan. Some way, somehow, this is going to plug into your providence and that looking back, it's going to be beautiful. Looking back is going to be spectacular. You see, for all of us, he, t- he places, in verse 11 it says, he places eternity into our hearts, doesn't he? See, here's our trouble. Our trouble is our perspective. We're nearsighted, right? We're nearsighted. We can only see the troubles of the here and now. We can only see the struggles of the here and now. We can only see the toil of the here and now. We get, we get wrapped up in our sin, and that's all we can say. We get wrapped up in our brokenness, and that's all we can say. We get wrapped up in our desperation, and that's all that we can see. But God has placed in us the awareness of eternity. That I don't care if you're Richard Dawkins. I don't care if you're Christopher Hitchens. I don't care if you're Bart Ehrman. I don't care what your name is. You know there's something bigger in play here. You know that God is doing something that you just can't see. And so it's kind of like the way we find ourselves is it's kind of like being on the edge of the Grand Canyon. And you know that it's spectacular. And you know that it's just glorious. And you just want to behold it with your eyes. And you just want to see it. And you just want to praise God. And you just want to just be awestruck for a moment. But it's like there's this cloud there. And you can't really see around it, and you can't really see under it, and you can't really see through it. Much of life is that way for us. That we know that God is doing something grander. For those of us in Christ, we know that it must be spectacular. We know that it must be beautiful. But when the, when the difficulty of life hits, it's like this, this cloud that's in front of us, and we can't see through it, and we can't see under it, and we can't see around it. Brothers and sisters, all we can do is look ahead in faith 
knowing that one day we will look back in gratitude. All we can do is look ahead in faith, knowing that one day we will look back in gratitude. This morning, you read from Isaiah 9. Isaiah 9 is looking ahead, 600 years before Jesus was to come. It's looking ahead saying, we need somebody to take the government upon his shoulders. We've got to have somebody that God will use to deliver his people. We've got to have somebody. We're trusting. We're trusting God that in your providence, we're trusting God that in your timing, all these things will be made beautiful. We're trusting God that one day he will come. And deliver us. For those of us in Christ, for those of us assured by the resurrection of our risen Savior, we know that God answers his word. We know that God has his children in his grip. We know that he has already come once and he will come again. We already have those assurances to bank on. And so as we go through the toil of life, As we walk through the hideous moments, yearning and aching and groaning and longing that God would make them beautiful. We look ahead in faith, knowing that one day we're going to look back in gratitude and awe and worship and praise. One day, you're going to look back on your cancer and you're going to say it's beautiful. You're going to call it beautiful. One day you're going to look back on the, on the difficulty in your family and you're going to call it beautiful. One day you're going to look back on the, the too early death of your husband and you're going to call it beautiful. One day you're going to look back on the demise of your dad and you're going to call it beautiful. One day you're going to look back at the heartbreaks of life and the hideous moments of life and you're going to say, that is spectacular. I had no idea what you were doing, but in your time it was beautiful. Turn with me to Romans 8 so you can see more clearly what I'm talking about. You see, all of this is pointing us. Romans 8 is right after the book of Acts. So you have the Gospels, Acts, and then Romans. But all of this is pointing for us. As it's building in us this this yearning for God to make it beautiful. As it's building in us for God to bring resolution to the tension in our lives and the tension in our souls. All of this is pointing us to to the sun that would come. Listen to what it says. Beginning in verse 18 of Romans 8. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. That the creation itself would be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. 
And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What I want you to see is this. Ever since Genesis 3. Ever since work turned into toil, ever since we began to struggle, the creation is groaning. We, as part of the creation, are groaning and aching and longing. Our our bodies are filled with, with, with groanings too deep for words that the Spirit is interpreting and relaying to the Father on our behalf. But, but, Christ has come. To make it beautiful. Christ has come to make it beautiful. So even though there are groanings in the creation. And even though there are groanings in us. And even though there are struggles in our lives. That he is going to take all of those things. And he is going to work them together for our good and for his glory. That he is taking all of these threads of providence and he is weaving them together to make the tapestry of our life so that one day everyone might look to us as living stones, testimonies to his grace and glory. You see, what Jesus came to do is Jesus came to turn our toil into praise. Only God can do that. Only God can come into your life and come into the struggles and come into the the weariness and come into the exhaustion and come into the heartbreak and the hideousness and come into that and say, I'm going to take that moment that was the worst moment of your life and I'm going to use it to bring praise to my name. I'm going to take the scariest moment of your life and I'm going to use it to give you praise and worship that depth that you didn't even know was possible before. I'm going to give you words of of glory and words of worship that are going to come through this struggle so that you might say with, with Job, before I had heard about you, but now I've seen you with my eyes. This morning, brothers and sisters, the advent of Christ empowers us to praise through the toil. Because Christ has come, We know how the story ends. As he moves into the last half of Ecclesiastes 3, the preacher of Ecclesiastes begins to to focus in on the greatest of life's toils. See, the greatest gift that God has given you and I is the gift of life. Life, that's the reason Christians are pro-life. This is the reason that we, we fight like crazy when people want to annihilate children and, and elderly people. This is why we fought, fight like crazy when the Chinese government wants to limit the number of children and abort the rest of them that are, 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 are conceived. We fight like crazy because the greatest gift that God can give to any person is the gift of life. Because it is with life that we are enabled to have relationship with him. Having been made, having been made alive, we are made so that we can know him, so that we can fellowship with him, so that we can walk with him, and so that we can love him, and him love and know his redeeming love, and know his, 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 the depths of his grace and the goodness of his mercy. Life allows all of that for us. But what is the greatest threat of earth? What is the, the most profound groaning in the Hardest and most hideous toil. It's death, right? 
to death. This is why he says, turn back with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 19. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath. And man has no advantage over the beast, for all is vanity. He's not talking about value here. He's not saying that men and beasts are equal in value. He's not saying that we're the same in value. He's saying we're the same in mortality. We're the same in reality with, of the, the death that we are pursuing. That one day, every single man and every single woman, unless Christ were to return, will die. And upon our death, we will come face to face with the divine judge. He says this in verse, se- verse uh, 17. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked. For there is a time for every matter and for every work. That one day, all of us, just as the beasts, so will we. We will pass away from this earth and we will stand before the divine judge, utterly exposed in everything that we are. He makes clear that, they're just, that, I, that God's justice is not like our justice. He says that in, in verse 16, that under the sun, even the places of justice there is wickedness. Even in the places of righteousness there is wickedness. We all know that in modern courts and in American courts and in worldwide courts, the judges are often more concerned with advancing political agenda, that sometimes rulings can be purchased, Sometimes justice can be bought. We all know that in this world that the places that are to be beacons of righteousness are wrought with sin and hypocrisy. The church is to be a beacon of of salt and light in this earth. And yet when Ashley Madison scandal broke, 400 pastors, 400 supposed men of God had to resign their positions over the next two weeks. But God's justice... And God's glory and God's holiness and God's righteousness is utterly different than that. God's justice does not compromise. God's justice is unwavering, far-reaching, infinite, perfect. God does not overlook sin for that would be unjust. God can no sooner uh, not punish you for lying as he could not punish Hitler for the concentration camps because it's unjust. God cannot turn his eyes the other way from sinfulness. His holiness will not allow it. The scriptures are clear that sin must be punished. Justice must be had. The problem for every one of us is that Jeremiah 17 says we are desperately wicked. That our hearts are desperately wicked. Romans 3.23 says that we have all fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23 says that the wages of our sin is death. That for us, that our sin has built for us a cross. A cross upon which we are to die once and for all. Upon which we will be tormented, experiencing the wrath of God, the justice of God forever. None of us have ever experienced true justice. Not one of us. None of us have ever truly gotten what we deserve for everything that we've done. Everything that we've thought everything that we almost did that we wanted to do, for everything that we did that was good but with wrong intentions, for every time we avoided accountability so that no one could call us out on our sin, 
for every time that we were unfaithful, when God had called us to be faithful, when we were doing what we shouldn't do. None of us have ever experienced true justice. None of us have ever truly had all of our wickedness utterly exposed. None of us have ever seen inside our minds. None of us have ever seen the the words that we think and the hatred that is in our hearts. None of us have ever seen how wicked our intentions are behind the good actions that we do. But one day we will stand before the divine judge and all will be laid bare. And God's justice cannot compromise. His holiness. A few weeks ago, I was sitting across the table from a man who had just abhorrent sin in his life. Abhorrent sin. And as he sat down at the table with me, I felt like the the oxygen had been sucked out of my lungs. I've never experienced anything like this before. And I look at him in the eyes and he just, he looks like he's just looking through me. Like he can't even see me. Like he's just possessed and I'm pleading with him pleading with him to repent pleading with him and he acknowledges that he needs to and he acknowledges that what he's done is wrong and he acknowledges that he has sinned against an infinite God yet all he could say is I'm just not there yet I'm 90% repentant 90% repentant Can you imagine, can you imagine how the 90% repentant will tremble at the sight of God? Can you imagine how a heart so hard will be utterly destroyed in the eyes of a holy God? Can you imagine when all of God's justice is poured upon him for the unborn sin in his life, what will come of him? See, our immortality leaves us longing for the same thing. Our mortality leaves us longing for immortality. Our looming death leaves us longing for resurrection. Our looming death causes us to hope and to pray that there is eternal life available. That there is eternal life out there. Because we are desperately wicked... Because God could not compromise his holiness. Because God was fully just and is utterly just. The only solution was that his son come and die on the cross that we built for our own lives. And even today, either he will die in your place or you will die on that cross. But because of his advent... Because of his coming, because of his having laid on that cross, because of him having bore your sin and living the life of perfection and righteousness that you were incapable of living, and because of his dying the death that you were supposed to die, because of his resurrection, now you can be resurrected, brothers and sisters. You who are mortal, you who are like the beast, who will go back into the dust, you can be raised from the dead. You can put on immortality, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. You see, not only, we miss this sometimes. And this is what I have just pondered all week long and worshipped God for all, all the way through the weekend. When we think about God's judgment, we think about God's judgment in the negative. And for some of you, I'm convinced that will be the case. That you will stand before him and you will be vaporized. 
but you'll never end. But for all of us in Christ, because he came and because he's coming again, do you realize that the judgment has now been made good news for us? That now the utter holiness, utter justice, utter righteousness of God is good news to us. It's good news to us. Because what does he say in verse 17? I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked. For there is a time for every matter and for every work. All of us were born desperately wicked. All of us were born short of God's glory. But because Christ has come for all who repent, for all who place their faith in him, we are now righteous. We are clothed in his righteousness. We've been given his holiness so that when we stand before the throne, we stand with a slate that has been wiped clean. The psalmist says that our sin has moved as far as the east is from the west. In Hebrews chapter 8, the writer says that our sin is no longer remembered. It has been forgotten. But it gets better. Not only do you stand before the, God, before the divine judge with a blank slate, you stand before the judge not only as a blank slate. You see, God will forget every sin in your history. God will forget every sin in your present God will forget every sin in your future. But God will remember every minuscule act of righteousness that has ever been in your life. And he will reward you for it. Every time you suffered even the smallest bit for his name, you will be rewarded with the weight of glory. Every time that you did without so that his kingdom might be advanced, you will be rewarded for his glory. Every fraction of holiness in your life, every fraction of, of secret faithfulness and secret godliness, every fraction of, of God-honoring character and integrity in your life, when you stand before the judge, he will have forgotten the sin and give you credit for the righteousness. You will be rewarded according to your good works, 2 Corinthians 5.10 says. As Christians... This is crazy. This is crazy. God is not going to count against you one bad thing that you've done. And yet God is going to give you credit for the tiny little good things that you have done. All of them. None of them beyond his, his view. None of them will, he over, uh, will be an oversight. All of them will be credited to your account. And you will be credited with the same level of righteousness and the same level of holiness as Christ himself. That you will dine at the table with the Father as a son and as a daughter. Church, can we get excited about something? Can we get excited about something? Your sin's not just forgotten. You're not just a blank neutral slate in front of God. You are a righteous son or a righteous daughter. Live free, brothers and sisters. Live as free as a corpse that's been raised from the dead would live. Live free as free as a prisoner that's been liberated from his prison would live. Live free, brothers and sisters, as free as a, as a prince son with an invincible king dad would live. Live free, church, because we are the redeemed of Christ. And his advent delivered us the first time, and his second will make us perfect forever. We will reign with him as sons and as daughters. This, this year, as we prepare to enter into the season of advent, 
as we move into time in which we celebrate his coming, I beckon us to come back to the cross for a little while. I call us back to the cross for a little while. I call us back to the cross to remember what put him there to begin with. I call us back to the cross to remember our toil, to remember our groanings, to remember our struggles, to remember that we could not overcome them, that God had to providentially make them beautiful. This morning, the only reason we celebrate Christmas is because we are sinners. The only reason a babe had to be born in a manger is because we were due death forever. How is it this morning that we can consider the cross and we can consider the glory of being made sons and the glory of being made daughters and at the same time realize our sin and not be filled with prayer and repentance and worship? Begin Advent with repentance and worship. Let me pray for us this morning.